I'd like to invite you to go ahead and find a seat, and we're going to get started this morning. We'll wait for that last one, that troublemaker there. Probably never made trouble in her life, did she? Well, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but I have been told apparently there is a football game this afternoon, later today. I, I, I heard about that. You aware of that? Clue you in in case you missed it. Now, I'd like you to uh, imagine with me for a moment something that's probably not going to occur today. But we'll see. It could happen. Would it not be a pretty strange thing if it came time for that football game to begin... The uh, team captains walked to the middle of the field. The referees met them in the middle of the field. Someone had a coin. They tossed the coin. There was a team that decided, we'll receive. And then all of a sudden, there was a very awkward silence as they kind of just looked at each other and realized nobody had a football. And they started going, well, you know, I thought, thought it was your job to bring the football. Well, no, you brought it last time. I thought that was... And a little blame shifting going around, but, but they realized... We want to start the game here, but we don't have football. So somewhat embarrassed, the referee turns around and faces the 64,000 fans at Hard Rock Stadium, turns on his mic and says, excuse me, can I have your attention just a minute? Uh, does anyone have a football we could borrow just for a couple hours? You know, anybody bring a football? And the fans are going, we're fans. It wasn't our job to bring the football. And, oh, boy, we don't have a football. So at this point, all the employees of the stadium are running around, checking closets, and, and one runs out and says, well, it's not a football, but I found an old soccer ball, so do you think maybe you could play the game with a soccer ball? I mean, come on, a ball's a ball. Uh, the two team captains look at each other and go, I just don't think it would be the same. No, I don't think we can play it with a soccer ball. And some other kid runs out and says, well, I found an old baseball. Can you play the game with a baseball? And the team captains just shake their head and go, no, no, we're, we can't play a football game with a baseball. You can have a football game without a lot of the things that are going on today around this football game. You can have a football game without the stadium. You can have a football game without lights and TV cameras. You can have a football game without fans. But there are some essential things you have to have to have a football game. You need two teams, and you do need a football this morning, I want to talk to you about one of the essential ingredients to the spiritual life, an essential ingredient to knowing God and to walking with Him. This morning, I want to talk to you about learning to trust God. You, you'll see this concept brought up throughout the Scripture with words like trust and faith and belief, and sometimes we don't think about it much because it's just so obvious. But this morning, I'd like us to think about it just a little. Now, for the believer, trust and faith is both a point and a process. It's a point in that it starts with a day, an hour, a minute, a time when you came to faith, when you were born again, when you realized that there was nothing you could do in life that would repair your broken relationship with God. So you got on your knees, and by grace through faith, you trusted Christ to be your Savior. You believed. That was your day one. That was the trailhead of your spiritual journey. 
But faith is more than that. It's also a process. Paul would later write in the New Testament, as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Well, how did you receive him? By faith. How then are we supposed to complete the process? By faith, the same way. The point here is that every day that the Lord enables you and I to wake up to take a breath is a day that we can be learning to trust God more, a day that we can grow in our faith. And this is important to God. He makes the point in Hebrews eleven six, where he says, And without faith it is impossible to please God. That whole chapter, chapter 11, is just filled with names of people who lived lives that pleased God. Why did their lives please God? Because they lived them by faith. And Jesus said, and God the Father says, when, when I see my children believing, exercising faith, he says, it pleases me. It brings a smile to my face. I'm going to look at three questions around this, this concept of faith this morning. Why should I put my trust in God? Why don't I trust God more? Have you ever asked yourself that question? And how? How do I learn to trust God more? First question, why should I put my trust in God? Another way you could ask this question is what happens when I trust in anything else other than God? If you don't learn to trust in God, you will create something to trust in. It might be a diploma on the wall. It might be a bank account. It might be a beautiful husband or wife hanging on your arm. It could be a career, a goal, a hobby, whatever. But if we don't trust God, we'll create something to trust, something to worship, something to value. And if I put my trust in anyone or anything other than God, there's a word for that in the Bible. It's called idolatry. That, in fact, is the actual definition of an idol. An idol is something I'm trusting other than God. Now, in the Ten Commandments, it makes it quite clear. It says, do not make any idols. In Deuteronomy, it explains part of the reason God said that. It says, for your own good, don't sin by making an idol in any form. The call not to have idols is not because God is vain. It's because God knows us and He knows what happens when we put something else in His place in our lives. And it's destructive. There are two very negative consequences of trusting something other than God in the God place of our lives. One is that I will be disappointed. Anytime I expect other people or other things to meet a need in my life that only God can meet at the end of the day, I will be disappointed. The Bible says in Jeremiah 10, 14, those who make idols are disillusioned. How often? 100% of the time. Always. Because they let you down. Hebrews 2, 18, of what value is an idol for he who makes it trust in his own creation? And we look at this sometimes in certain cultures, third world, and we say, well, that's crazy. You took a stone. You took a piece of wood. You carved on it. It's a god now? Really? I mean, that's ridiculous. But we do the same thing. Except instead of a piece of wood, we insert career or relationship or bank account. And we act as if those things give meaning to life as if those things are the things that make significance, that those things can give us worth and value. And when we do that, 
we're just going to be disillusioned in the end. When we trust anything besides God, ultimately, we're disappointed and we're disillusioned. But that's not all. There's another negative consequence, and that is we're going to be dominated by it. 1 Corinthians 12, 2 says, You were controlled by dead idols who led you astray. Anything you value most in life, whatever is in first place, is kind of your God. And if it's not the true God, then you've built an idol. And whatever is in first place in your life, whatever you value most, will eventually control you. That's why you want it to be the true and living God. He's the only one wise enough to give you the right directions to make life work. This really is how a a lot of times addiction starts. Something becomes so important in the beginning, we think we're controlling it, we're using it, but eventually at the end of the day, it's controlling us, it's using us. The Bible says in Psalms 115.8, those who make idols end up like them, and so does everyone who trusts in them. The point here is whatever you value the most in life, you're going to become like. So if I value money as the most important thing in my life, I'm going to become a materialist. I can't help it. It will happen. If I value myself as the most important thing in life, I will become a narcissist. Can't help it. It's just going to happen. If I value pleasure as the most important thing in my life, I will become a hedonist. Can't help it. It's just going to happen. Whatever we put at the top value in our life is ultimately going to shape us, and if it is not the true God, then it will warp us. So if we're trusting in something other than God this morning, it's not a question of will we be disappointed or will we be dominated. The only question is how quickly that process will occur. Because that's what happens when we trust in something other than God. Let's take a look at that second big question. Why is it I don't trust God more? Have you ever asked yourself that one? Why do I end up trusting all these things instead of trusting in God? And, and we would like to make this, the answer to this question very complex, but in reality, it's just amazingly simple. The answer is because I really don't know God very well. You don't trust somebody you don't know, and neither do I. If a stranger walks up to you on the street this afternoon and says, you're going to live 50 years longer if you eat four grapefruits every morning, are you going to start eating four grapefruits? I don't think so. You're going to go, you're probably crazy. If you're not crazy, I mean, who are you? Who are you to come up and talk to me and tell me what I should or should not be doing? I'm, you're just some stranger. I don't even know you. I, I put no validity in what you say at all. And the same is true with God. If you don't know God and you don't know what He's really like, if you've got some phony ideas or some foggy ideas about who He really is that you got from who knows where, then you're not really going to want to trust Him. And when God says things like, I thought up sex and it's best reserved only for marriage, if you don't really know God, you're going to go, hang on, just a minute, who are you to tell me what to do with my sexuality? Who set you up as judge? You're not going to trust him. If you don't know God, you tend to question the things that he says to do. On the other hand, if you do know God, if you've learned that he is faithful and true, if you really know how much he loves you, if you know how much you matter to him, if you know what he's got in store for your life and you understand he has your best interest at heart, 
then it's really not that hard to trust him. There are a handful of people, I'll probably go between 5 and 10 on this one, who could call me up at 3 a.m. in the morning and say something like, I don't have time to explain, but I need you to fill in the blank. And the blank could be something that was hard, something that was difficult, something that seemed to make no sense, something that was crazy. And I'd jump out of bed and do it. Now, not everybody, but there's a handful of people who could make that request of me at 3 a.m. Randy, I don't have time to explain it, but I just need you to do this. Please go do it. And I would do it. Why would I do it? Because with this handful of people, we have a, uh, a database. We have a, an, an account of relational equity. Over the years, I have learned them to be faithful and true people. And so if they make that request, even if I don't understand why, the fact that I know they don't make crazy requests, and I know there's a reason for what they do, if they make the request, I'll do it. And then later on, I'll say, so, so what was the deal? <laughs> what was going on there? And they'll give me the rest of the story, and I'll go, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I understand exactly why you asked me to do that. Relational trust equity. Over time, you, you probably have that relationship also with some people. You've learned to trust them. You've learned they're trustworthy. And it's the same thing with God. Trusting God makes sense when we get to know Him. I mean, He created us. He wrote the owner's manual on how life works. And we look in that owner's manual and we see who He is. He is creator. He is the source of life. He is the source of light. He is good. He is sovereign. He is holy. He is wise. He is just. He is faithful. He is loving. He is true. And when we understand that, we understand that He knows far more about life than you or I do. So when I see God says, this is how life works, and we learn that this is His character and who He is, then we come to the point that we say, I believe God is true even if my feelings are telling me something else. I believe what God says is true even if I perceive something differently. I believe that what God says is true even if I don't understand the why or the urgency of that. When I understand who He is and His character, then I see that all of God's commands really are there, since He is a loving Heavenly Father, either to provide for me or to protect me. We need to see God as He truly is from His Word. Because if we don't know the truth about Him, we won't trust Him. And if we can't trust Him, we don't have a relationship. Because relationships are built on trust and truth. And since God is trustworthy in His character... The more we get to know God, the easier and more natural it is to trust Him. So if you're having trouble trusting God this morning, don't try harder. Get to know Him better. Get to know Him better. And you'll find it easier to trust Him. Yesterday morning I was in the room, and we have a group of men going through this legacy lab thing, studying the attributes of God. Those are kind of lofty, hard things sometimes to study and think about. But you know what? what's happening when we do that? We're getting to know God better. And that helps trust. Well, how do I learn to trust God more? This is an interesting area, sometimes abused and misused. But, you know, some of God's promises have conditions. Matthew 21, 22. He said, if you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer. 
There was a condition there, and the condition of this promise is trust. God, in essence, is saying, the more you are willing to trust me, the more I can work in your life. The more you're willing to have faith in me, the more I can do. God gives us promises, but he asks us to bring to those promises an attitude of trust and of faith and of belief. The less I trust God, the less he's able to work in my life. There's a faith factor that's involved, and sometimes it's kind of hard to explain and to quantify, but it's very real and very there. Matthew 9. As Jesus went down from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to him, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. Your eyes are opened. God was saying to them, at one level, you kind of get to choose how much I work in your life. Can you bring faith to my promises? Now, of course, this is within the context of the will of God and the word of God. We're not taking this, ripping it out of Scripture and coming up with some self-centered TV theology on name it and claim it. But within the true spiritual life, There is a dynamic here, and God says, bring faith, bring trust to my promises, and I can work with that. Faith is an interesting substance. You don't necessarily get more faith by just sitting in a Bible study talking about it. You don't necessarily get more faith by wishing you had more faith. You don't necessarily get more faith by hoping that you have more faith. Faith is very much like a muscle. If you take a muscle and you use that muscle, you stretch that muscle, you, you work that muscle out, it will become a greater capacity, greater strength. If you ignore that muscle for a long period of time, let's say you injure something and you're in a cast, what happens? Atrophy. If it's not used, it gets weaker. The more it's used, the stronger it gets. Very much like faith. Faith is a muscle like that. The more it gets stretched, the more God is able to work in our lives. And God has a word for those things, those circumstances that he brings into our world that enable us to increase our faith. You know what that word is? Trials. Trials. Another way you might say that is obstacles, challenges, problems, spiritual workouts, And when we meet those trials, those obstacles, those challenges, those problems, when we meet them with trust and with faith, we have the ingredient of a workout that's going to build that muscle. 1 Peter 1 says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's making the point there that just like they would take fire and and use that to refine silver and gold, God refines our faith. He builds our faith with, with test. John 16, 33, Jesus said it this way to his followers. Now I've told you these things so that you might have peace. Now in this world you will have trouble. In this world you will have trials. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. Jesus was giving his followers a heads up that there would be trouble, there would be trials, there would be problems, but he promised his peace and his presence in the midst of those trials. He also promised ultimate victory from all of life's temporary trials 
as we spend eternity with him. So let's take a look at a few of the common types of trials or obstacles that come into our world that can be used to grow our faith. The first one we'll call the pressure test. Anybody here this morning feeling like you're going through a pressure test? David, I think, felt that way when he wrote Psalm 22. Listen to the way he described it. He said, God, why have you forsaken me? God, you got to understand, I mean, trouble is here. Trouble is near. I am being poured out here like water. My bones are like, it's like they are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is literally melting within me. My strength is all dried up, and I am surrounded by evildoers. He was not having a good day. <laughs> that was a pressure test. That was a pressure test. Pressure can come into our world uh, from a lot of sources, can it? Sometimes it comes in from health situations that come into our, our world or, or financial problems that we have to face or maybe job issues or lack of a job or legal issues. Sometimes it's just major decisions we have to make or, or change that comes into our world. But those can all bring pressure. And it's, sometimes it can seem like you're in a vice and someone just seems to keep closing the jaws and the pressure keeps increasing. The pressure test asks the question, when I'm under stress, will I depend on myself or will I depend on God? In Psalm 50, 15, it says, call upon me in your day of trouble and I will rescue you. God says, I want you to turn to me when you're in trouble, not to other things. Now, do we commonly do that? Usually not. <laughs> we have a long list, it seems like, of other things we just tend to turn to when we're under stress before we think about turning to God. You know, sometimes people say, well, I know I do when I get under stress. You know that when I get under stress, I, I need one of those little pills. That's how I handle stress. Now, I'm not talking about the legitimate use of medicines. That's real. But, friends, we're living in a society where... There's an epidemic of abuse of alcohol, of legal medications and illegal medications. And why are they being used? Because this is how people have chosen to handle stress. I'm just turning to that. Others say, well, I don't do that, but when I get tense and nervous, here's what I do. I, you know, maybe I phone a friend and I just sit there for an hour and a half and I just pour out all my problems to him. I complain for an hour and a half about how bad my life is. And then I feel a little better. Others say, well, I know what I do. When I get under stress, I make nachos. You know, I'll just make something good to eat, something that's kind of yummy in the tummy. And, and so, you know, you finish off the whole bowl of nachos, and, yeah, it tasted good, but, you know, the problems really haven't changed. The stress hasn't gone. Uh, and then you're worrying about being overweight. Mm. Didn't seem to help. Try to eat our stress away. Sometimes in our culture, uh, people commonly, when they're under stress, think, well, I know what I'll do. I'll go shopping. You know, when the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. And, and so you think, surely there's something on Amazon that I need that I don't own that I could, you know. And when I hit, you know, purchase, I get that, oh, good, you know, that little, little you know, thrill, that little dopamine there of, hey, I got something coming. Yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll go shopping. Or if you're a guy, maybe you're just thinking, ah, I'm just all stressed out. I don't know what to do. I'll just sit down and watch a football game and, you know, just kind of zone out. Like, I don't think about my life for three hours. I'll just think about this game or I'll watch this movie or I'll go do a workout or whatever. Anyway, the point is, we come up with all these little things that we use to handle stress in our lives. 
And God says, you know what I really wanted here when you're under the stress test is I wanted you to turn to me. Now, there's legitimate needs in our life that have to be met. God's not minimizing that. But he says, when those needs come, when those times of need come, turn to me. Turn to me first. The problem sometimes is we get in a bit of a hurry. And if God does not instantly remove that stress from our world, then we kind of conclude, I guess I better make my own plan. I better meet my, get my own needs met my own way. This isn't new. In Jeremiah 2.13, it says, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God was saying, you could turn to me, guys, but they're saying, no, thank you. We're going to get our own water our own way, and we're going to store it in our own broken little cistern. And even worse than that, sometimes we have the audacity when we come up with our own little plans here. We're digging our well, and we're asking God to bless our well, and we're getting mad at him. He's not blessing it more. You ever done that? You get in a situation or a relationship you knew you shouldn't have gotten into, and then you pray, God, bless this relationship. God, bless this plan. Or maybe you go out and you buy things you don't need with money you don't have to impress people you don't like, and then you get overextended, and you say, God, bless our finances. We figure out our own plan to meet our own needs. But God, you know, isn't going to honor those prayers. When the pressure test comes, he has something he's trying to do. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 would be a great tool if you find yourself under a pressure test this morning. You know, go here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. God's saying, this is a test. God said, I want to see whether you'll turn to me when you're under stress or you'll turn to yourself. Will you trust me? Here's another verse. It's a great, a great tool to use if you're under a pressure test. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Super practical here. Stop worrying. Start praying. Start being thankful. Bring that need to God. By faith, trust God to work in the situation and receive God's peace. Now, when do you receive God's peace? After the pressure is off and the prayer has been answered? No. Receive God's peace now, even while waiting, before the yes comes. Receive God's peace. In other words, it's just saying give it to God and then give God some time, some space, and some room to work. Don't, don't do what we want to do so quickly. Run in and make our own plan. Avoid that temptation. Just give it to God. Give God a little space and room to work. And we say, well, what do I do while I'm waiting? Well, that's where we trust. That's the faith zone. That's the trust zone where we just say, I've given this to God and, and I'm going to build my faith muscle here by waiting and trusting. Another test God often uses to build our faith is the people test. God often uses people in our lives to stretch and develop our faith. This, quest, this test kind of speaks to the issue, how will I handle disappointment? The fact is, you know, life at times can be disappointing, can it? 
But for most people, the most disappointing things they have to process in life are other people. Now, why do we get disappointed with people in life? Well, I think sometimes we get disappointed by other people because we expect them to meet needs in our life that really only God can meet. You know, maybe you turn to a friend, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a father, a mother, a husband, a wife, a child, and you expect them to meet all of your needs or some of your basic needs. And when we do that, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment because God really never intended it for it to work that way. No person can possibly meet all your needs. And when they let you down, you tend to think, well, hey, what, you know, what is wrong with them? Well, very possibly the problem was ours. We put an expectation on them they couldn't possibly fulfill. This was a test. The problem is usually not the other people in our life. The problem is our response to the other people in our life. Because really, people are not the problem, nor are they the answer to the problem. The answer to feelings of insecurity cannot be met with another person. The answer to feelings of inferiority cannot be met with another person. The answer to anxiety, worry, and fear is not another person. The answer to depression, despair, and discouragement is not another person. The answer to meaninglessness or a lack of purpose in life is not going to be found in another person. The answer to those questions, those important questions, are found in God. And when we look to other people to answer those questions for us, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. Isaiah 2.22 says, Stop trusting in human beings. Don't expect a person to be the answer to all your problems. That's not going to happen. And if you're doing that, you're setting yourself up for a fall. We know this in our head. We just got to get it into our, our heart. There was one perfect person. There was one person who did it right 100% of the time. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. All the rest of us are put in a category labeled other, okay? <laughs> We're other. Perfect other, <laughs> okay? So don't look to other others, you know, to be your source. Look to the perfect one. And, and the others are just like you and I. They're just as uh, imperfect as you and I. Jeremiah 17, 7, Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. Isaiah 49, 23, Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Another reason I think we can get disappointed with people is that we love them with the wrong kind of love. 1 John 4 says this, This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We love because He first loved us. Those who love God must also love one another. So here's the problem. We love other people. And then we expect and kind of demand that they love us back. And you know what? Most people do. Most do. But what if, what if those people we're loving are not emotionally or spiritually in a good, healthy place in this season in their life? What if they can't return that grace of love that we're giving to them? Well, oftentimes that's pretty disappointing, isn't it? But if you look at the model that 1 John 4 described, that's not the model being used there. The model there is we love because He first loved us. In other words, 
First John was describing the scenario whereby we draw near to God and we receive from Him His love, His acceptance, His mercy, His grace, His encouragement. You could call that tier one love. And then after we have received that, where God flows His love into us, we offer tier two love to the people around us. We love because He first loved us. Now, will those people love us back? Well, we desire that they do. We, we pursue a loving and healthy relationship with them, don't we? But we don't require it. We can love them even if they're unlovely. We can love them even if they don't love back. Because God is still streaming His resources to us. Tier 1 love. So we can even love them if they're unlovely. Because God hasn't quit streaming His resources into our life. God's love is strong in us. Let me ask you this question. Do you have any characters in your world? Did you know I know the answer to that question? It's yes. <laughs> we all <clears throat> get some characters in our world. Um, it's a test. It's the people test. Are we going to love with God's kind of love? Are we going to accept that God knows what's best for our life? That God has a loving plan for our life? That God loves you and knows what we need even more than we know what we need? And He's in control. And that even the disappointments we experience in life can have a positive purpose, whether we understand that or not. That's the faith component, the trust component. It's a test. Are you going to trust God with the things and the people who disappoint you? Third test God uses to grow our faith is the persistence test. This test asks the question, will I keep my commitments? Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, but you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all your duties of your ministry, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. If you look at that passage, it is rich with words of commitment. Life is about making commitments. Your life is shaped by your commitments. Your character is developed by your commitments. You become that which you are committed to. The problem today is that most people are half committed to two dozen different meaningless things instead of being really committed to a couple things that matter. And that's kind of a waste of life. If you're going to develop any skill or maturity for that matter, you've got to learn to make and to keep commitments. The hallmark of emotional and spiritual maturity is that you make and you keep wise commitments. Immaturity shows itself in the inability to make and to keep commitments. Have you ever noticed that no commitment that really matters is easy? If they're good, if they're important, they're all hard and they all will be tested. Some of you, maybe this morning, are in a commitment test right now. Your marriage vows were, are being tested. Is it really going to be till death do us part? It's a test. Maybe you're in a personal integrity test right now. You're in a situation, you know the right thing to do, but you also know the easy thing to do. It's a test. It's a test of your character. 
Paul could say at the end of his life, I fought the good fight because early on he seemed to figure out one very important lesson about life. And that is all of us will experience trials and difficulties. Everyone will. But there are two very different places you can go from that experience. You can surround that difficulty with doubt and with fear, which will leave us whining. Why me? Or you can surround that difficulty with faith and with hope, which will leave us shining. So ultimately, we get to decide. Are we going to be whiners or are we going to be shiners? Paul decided he was going to shine. Think of his life for a little bit and some of the circumstances he went through. I mean, he's trying to run around and meet people, lead them to Christ, make disciples and start churches. He really wants to do that. But he gets arrested, and they throw him in prison. He can't run around, lead people to Christ, make disciples and start churches. He really wants to. But no, they lock him up in prison. He could have given in to doubt and fear. He could have started complaining. He started whining. This isn't fair. Why are they interfering with my plans? Why me? Why now? Could have had a pity party and just shut down and sat there in jail and moped. But he didn't do that. He says, well, prison. Hmm. Not what I had in plan. <laughs> I, I had other things in, in mind, but uh, I'm here. Okay? Um, <clears throat> wanted to share Christ out there, but can't be out there. But I got a couple guys here whose job is to stand next to me 24-7. I guess I'll talk to them about the gospel. And you know, I've always wanted to take the gospel to, uh, to Rome someday. It's been a, a dream in my heart. And, uh, you know, this is an unfair uh, process and these charges are unfair but you know if I appeal them guess where the appeals court is hey that's in Rome I wonder if this might be how I get over there with the gospel and you know I really wanted to be out meeting with people and, and building churches but since I'm, I'm stuck here I guess I got a little time to write maybe I'll get some paper and just write a few letters you know to some friends maybe maybe I'll, I'll you know write some letters to some of those churches you know that we've been at in the past, maybe write a letter to the Philippian church or the Ephesian church or the Colossian church or a letter to Philemon. And, and who knows, maybe those letters will be an encouragement, you know, to that small group of believers. I don't know, maybe, maybe possibly those letters might be an encouragement to someone even beyond that little group of believers. You know, what do you, what do you imagine? Who knows, Paul thought, what God could do with the opportunities that come my way if I choose to meet them with faith instead of fear. And, you know, think about your own life and the obstacles you face. Who knows what God could do with those situations if you were to meet those situations with faith instead of fear? God's plan works out in some amazingly complicated ways sometimes. He can accomplish things with the tools uh, in ways that we don't imagine from the front end, but we look back on and say, wow, that was a God thing. So who knows what God could do? The priority test is the fourth test. This is a very important one. It's going to be the, the kind of the question, what will be first in my life? What will be most important in my life? Jesus would say it this way to his disciples later on in the New Testament. He'd say, guys, here's what you need to do. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, what are all these things? Well, all these things is all the other little stuff of life. That's what those are. All those little details of life, you know, that stuff will fall in place. How do you know what is in the, the first place or the priority of your life? 
Well, it's really quite easy. There's a couple indicators that will just make it, you know, as evident as, as could be. Just take a look at where do your thoughts go, where does your time go, where does your money go when you have control over it. So when you have time to think, when you have money to spend, when you have time to spend, what do you do with it? Whatever that is, is the stuff that's important to your life. That's what's, that's what's in first place in your life. That's, that'll indicate the priorities. It'll, it's a perfect read every time. Sharon and I, we like to, we're outdoorsy people. We like to camp and, and go to the Rockies and do stuff outdoors. And a couple of years ago, Sharon brought to my attention, we are not getting any younger, and she's kind of tired of sleeping on the ground. So this was her way of sharing with me that if we're going to continue to be outdoorsy people, I need to get something hard-sided and, you know, a little better than what we'd done in the earlier years. Okay. So anyway, I looked around, started doing that search, and, uh, and we found a, a trailer we liked, but lo and behold, my Honda Accord wouldn't pull it, you know. It's done everything else I've ever asked of it, but this, this time it said, no, no, Randy, I'm not doing that. Wasn't built for that, ain't going to do it. Okay. So I had to go find something that would pull an 8,000-pound trailer. And I, you know, we've, so we looked around and, and we found a nice, a nice truck that could pull it. But it's, it's not a little Honda Accord. This is a beefy guy. This is a beefy, trucky truck. And uh, so we got this thing and we brought it home and we parked it in the driveway and we got out and, and we're standing there and we're kind of looking at the truck and we're looking at the, uh, the garage and we're looking at the truck and looking at the garage and... Sharon says what we were both kind of thinking, which was, it's never going to fit in there. <laughs> I understand that. I was kind of thinking the same thing, too. But, but I really want it to fit in there because I want my cars to be taken care of. I take care of them. They take care of me. It's, it's a deal we have. So, so anyway, a little later on, I decided uh, I want to try. So on someone's Saturday morning, I got out there early. And I literally just started taking everything out of the garage. So went in, grabbed everything, threw it out off the side of the driveway, uh, took out shelves, took out stuff, just emptied the garage so it was nothing but concrete and drywall. All that was left. And then I took the truck and tried a few different positions. And you know what? It does fit. I, in fact, I got three inches to spare. I do have to pull in the side mirror to get, you know. But, you know, pull in the side mirror, and I got at least three inches, you know, to work with there. I can get the truck in. So <clears throat> then I started taking that stuff in the driveway and putting it around the big piece. I also noticed some of the stuff. I'm going, why, why do I still have this? This is of no value to anyone. I should just get rid of this. But the other stuff, you know, it got packed in and, Built some shelving around the big boy. See, the point is when you put the little stuff in first, then you look at the big thing and think, it'll never fit. And that's true. But when you put the big thing in first, the little stuff packs around it, and it does fit. And that's kind of the way priorities work. You know, when we put the big things that God says in our life in first, then the other stuff packs around it. But if we put the little stuff in first, We'll always spend our life saying, I know God says to do that, but I can't do that. It it's not going to fit. It'll never fit. And it won't fit unless we put it in first. That's the priority test. Put the big things in first. This time I'd like those who are going to be uh, helping serve communion to come forward and go ahead and start passing out the elements. And as you get that, I invite you just to hang on that. Hold, hold that for a minute, and we will partake together in just a second. 
like we mentioned at the beginning, you wouldn't try to have a football game without a football. And don't try to have a spiritual life, a walk with God, without this very important thing called faith, belief, trust. So why should I put my trust in God? Because He is worthy of my trust. And if I put my trust anywhere else, I have made an idol, something not worthy of my trust. And if I'm headed down that road, it will end in disappointment and domination. Why don't I trust God more? Bottom line, that's an indicator I don't know Him very well. Because if you really get to know God, you've learned He's both faithful and true, and you know how much He loves you, and you know how much you matter to Him. And the more you learn that, the easier it gets to trust the things He says. How do I learn to trust God more? Well, when you encounter trials and obstacles and problems and difficulties in life, you meet them with faith instead of fear. You use the process to strengthen your faith muscle. You see it as an opportunity to see God at work. You see it as an opportunity to trust Him. And when you're going through a pressure test, you turn to God instead of other things. And when you're going through a people test and you encounter disappointment, you choose to shine instead of whine. And when you're going through a persistence test, you keep your commitments. You choose to be a finisher instead of a quitter. And when you're going through a priority test, you seek the kingdom first. You put the big truck in first and let the little stuff fill in around the edges. Because when you make those choices, you're learning to trust God. And according to Hebrews 11.6, that brings a smile to God's face. Now, communion, as we practice it here, this is a family event. So this is for those who have had a day one, a time in your life when you stopped trusting in yourself and you invited Christ in. A day when by the grace of God you received the gift of salvation by putting your faith in Christ. If you've had a day one and you're walking with Christ, we invite you uh, to partake with us today. If you have not had a day one yet, then I would just tell you this morning would be a wonderful time to have a spiritual birthday. February 2nd, 2020 would be a great day to be your spiritual birthday. And I'd invite you to talk with one of us afterwards. Talk with me, talk with a staff member, talk with anyone sitting around you. who uh, They'll probably be glad just to pray with you and help today be your birthday. Now, I'm not in day one. As best I can figure it out, I'm living day 16,812. I heard someone say recently, you ought to be a better grandparent than you were a parent because you should have learned some things along the way. And I kind of chuckled at that, but you know, there's some truth to that. There's some things you should have learned along the way. And if you, this is not your spiritual day one, the same applies. We can learn some things along the way. Faith was not something we used day one and then quit using. Faith is something we use every day as we learn the process. For all of us who are children of God, there are still going to be some days in front of us that have pressure tests. There are still some people tests in front of us. There's going to be some persistence tests in front of us. There's going to be some priority tests we're going to have to face. And God is going to give us that wonderful opportunity to grow our faith even more and to watch Him do some amazing things for His glory. And we get to be a part of it. We get to be in the game. It's kind of like we get to play on the winning team of the Super Bowl. So as you take this morning, communion this morning, I just invite you to celebrate the privilege of being in the family of God, the privilege of getting to play in the game of faith and eternity, the privilege of trusting God on this journey we call faith. 
I'd like to remind you as you do that this morning, there's a big difference between an unanswered question and an answered question. For example, if we ask the question, who will win the Super Bowl today? That is an unanswered question. Now we think we know who's going to win it. We can hope at what the score might be. But let's be honest, we're just guessing. But there are answered questions. Who won the Super Bowl last year? You don't have to wonder about that. New England Patriots beat the Los Angeles Rams 13-3. to We have certainty on that. There's no question about it. We know the answer to that one. And as you take communion this morning, I would just remind you that through the gospel of Christ, through this thing we celebrate, it's a time to give thanks. And one of the reasons you can be thankful is that if you're a child of God, you've got the biggest three questions of life answered. You know, everybody, whether you're in sixth grade or 96 years old, has to answer a couple pretty core questions in life. Am I loved? Am I valuable? Do I belong? You've got to find the answers to those. If you take those questions out into the world system, you're going to have a hard life, and it's not going to end in life. But you take those questions to a heavenly father. You take those questions to the gospel. Am I loved? The answer is yes. You're holding the proof of it in your hands. Are you valuable? The answer is yes. You're holding the proof of it in your hands. Do you belong? The answer is yes. You're holding the proof of it in your hands. the body of Christ, which was broken for you. And the blood of Christ, which was spilled for you.